I am Angelina Pratt, your host of Empathetic Witness. Today, I have a special guest. Of course, all my guests are special, but this guest will be really interesting. She is Jean Tillier, a senior counsel with the national law firm dealing with Indigenous rights law. She's also a published author of the monumental history of Métis nations in Canada. The Northwest is our mother. Her book is a gripping and very readable, meticulously researched history and has won the Carol Shields History Award. In addition to these accomplishments, I will speak to Jean about her early career and what led her to law. Her advocacy has advanced Métis rights. She has lead counsel in the landmark Powley decision that established the legal basis for Métis Aboriginal rights under Canadian Constitution. Jane, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. All right. Well, so exciting to see you and um, welcome you to the Empathetic Witness podcast. And I've been really looking forward to this. Um, what I want to start with, I, I want to just get right into it <laughs> because I've been kind of excited about the appointment of an Indigenous judge to the Supreme Court early in September. Mm -hmm. And the question I wanted to ask you, Jean, is how come you think it took so long to appoint an Indigenous judge? Was it, do you believe, the requirement of the French, by being bilingual, being French, as an impediment to most Indigenous judges? Um, well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. Um, number one, I think until very recently, and I'd say the last mm, 10 years or so, I don't believe that those who are appointing the judges to the Supreme Court really believed that there were Indigenous lawyers who were um, sufficiently qualified for the job, which is patently false. Yes. There are many, many brilliant Indigenous lawyers who are across the country who could have been on the Supreme Court a long time ago. Um, so I think that it's they had to change their attitudes first. And I don't think that even came into play until 2015 when the new Trudeau government came into power. So I think that had to happen first. But the then the problem is that at that exact time, that's when they brought in the French language requirement. So that made a that that kicked a lot of people out of the running. So as I understand it, John Burroughs made a significant effort to try and learn French 
uh, and applied for the Supreme Court of Canada. I gather his French never quite got up to the speed that they thought mm. necessary to achieve. Um, and I think other people who might well have been considered for the job just didn't have the French for it. Um, so I think that that the French language thing has been an impediment now. It certainly is. Mm-hmm. And I think that if there are any Indigenous uh, young people out there who are in law school right now who even think even vaguely that this might be something they're interested in, they better start taking French courses mm. um, to become more bilingual. So Michelle Obansawan, who is in there, it happened to be in a very, um, is fully bilingual. Although yeah. I was at the Indigenous Bar Association conference a couple of weekends ago in Montreal, might even have been last no it was two weekends ago and um she says she has made a point of telling the chief justice of the ontario court certainly that a lot of the judges that they have on their list who they say are bilingual she says really aren't their french is nowhere near good enough to do it Mm. so um and, and, you know, and I know that some of the judges who were on the Supreme Court of Canada, like Rosabella, yeah. I mean, I know she was taking French classes, but she was nowhere near bilingual. Um, and the same with Rao from Newfoundland, you know, yeah. he's not bilingual. Like people, there's, there's, there really aren't uh, people on there. So it's a new requirement. And so some of those older judges who are on there now, they don't mean that. So I don't think Karakansakas either is fully bilingual, although I may be wrong about that. But um, but anyway, it's a new requirement, um, and it's a pushes the standard higher. And I'm you know delighted that we have one person on the bench now. Yeah, I I was really excited when I saw that. I thought, yeah, this is really great. It's progression, um, because there are so many things you know, in Canada that we can see that is really doesn't honor Indigenous peoples the way it ought to be, you know. Um, I mean, I think just even the recent decision not to hear the St. Anne's um, court case at the Supreme Court, I think a lot of people were really upset with that, especially, you know, in light of reconciliation. You know, what does that mean when the court is not willing to hear that that uh, that case? And so before we go further, I would like you to introduce yourself and maybe tell me and the audience a little bit of your origin story because I think that's really fascinating as well, you know, the Métis history and your advocacy for Métis rights. So why don't we start there? Okay. (laughs) Uh, So my name is Jean Taye, and I am an Indigenous rights lawyer, a writer, um, and um, public speaker, uh, mostly on... Indigenous rights, um, but also on identity issues and um, Métis issues. So Maria Campbell, who's a very well-known and respected Métis elder in Saskatchewan, 
says, when you introduce yourself, you should tell people who you are, who's your grandmother, and where are you from? Mm. So that's kind of what I do. So um, my, like I said, my name is Jean Taye. My um, grandmother, so Maria's, who's your grandmother? <laughs> okay. My <laughs> grandmother was Sarah Riel. So for those of you who know um, Métis history, there is a famous Sarah Riel who was a nun in Illa La Crosse in Saskatchewan. That is not my grandmother. Okay. <laughs> my grandmother is named after her. So my grandmother is Sarah Riel. And Sarah's father was Joseph Riel. And Joseph Riel was Louis Riel's little brother and Sarah the nun's little brother. So he named his first granddaughter, my grandmother, his first, sorry, his first child, my granddaughter, after his beloved sister, Sarah the nun. So that's that relationship. And as I said, he, my great grandfather is the younger brother of Louis Riel, the famous Louis Riel. Yeah. Uh, my grand great grandfather Joseph Riel was married to Eleanor Poitras, and the Poitrases are another very well known Metis name on the prairies. And she is the granddaughter of Cuthbert Grant's sister Marguerite. So, and there's a Fisher in there as well. So her mother was a Fisher. So I'm a Grant and a Fisher and a Poitras and a Riel. So wow. that's kind of my people when when maria says who's your grandmother who are your people that's my people mm. then she says where are you from okay i was quite literally born on the banks of the red river in winnipeg what is now winnipeg but was is actually saint boniface is where i was born and i spent the first 25 years of my life living within i'd say a mile of the red river mm. and so i am your in saint boniface and saint vitale which are to pretty well known and originally established as Métis communities. Um, and so I am your classic Red River Métis, if you want to know who that is. So that's where I'm from. That's my, my locale is Red River. Um, so I just want to clarify, though, when the Métis speak about Red River, we don't usually mean, I, I was born on the banks of the Red River, <laughs> but we don't actually mean just that. Red River is an area because mm. um, the Métis called the Assiniboine River, which starts in Saskatchewan and flows into the Forks, which are right at Winnipeg, where the Red and the Assiniboine meet. The Métis didn't call the Assiniboine a separate river. They called it the Upper Red and the red the red river which we now call the red river which flows um into lake winnipeg basically from around minneapolis up into mm -hmm. the forks at winnipeg where it means and then goes further north up into lake winnipeg um they called that the lower red and the assiniboine was the upper red and red river was that whole region which is now goes into minnesota north dakota saskatchewan and mm -hmm. from basically from um lake Winnipeg down to there. It's a very large area. And that when they speak about being Red River Métis or Red River, that's what they mean. Mm. They don't necessarily mean as specific as my <laughs> circumstances, which is actually born right on the banks of the Red River. Yeah. So um, but so it's a larger concept than just the actual river itself today, or what we know as the Red River today. So that's where I'm from. That's where I grew up. That's where, uh, and that's my people. Mm, wow, you have, you're certainly tied into it 
literally and figuratively <laughs> into yes. the Red River. <laughs> and these days when everybody is questioning the pretendians, yes. questioning who people are, yeah. I am more than happy to talk way more about this and to show you an independent genealogy stamped by the St. Boniface Historical Society yeah. that shows that genealogy. And I am also... Um, um, member of the Manitoba Métis Federation. So just all of that stuff. If uh, I'm happy to talk more about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know lots of people go, oh, don't ask that. That's private information. I won't do that. I'm not one of those people. I'm happy to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And you're proud to talk about it. I think well, I was raised to be very proud of being a real. Like in yeah. those were in the days in the 50s, mm -hmm. 19th, showing my age here, um, <laughs> where... Um, Riel was thought to be a dirty, uh, insane traitor. And that was the common story about Riel mm -hmm. and Métis were um, not considered. To, we were dirty, drunken um, half-breeds, you know, um, and traitors. And so, but I was raised to be very proud of being a Riel. Um, my family revered him and um i it taught our children and we were taught as children to be extraordinarily proud so i'm not one of these people who came to my matey identity late mm. or to who didn't know i was a real until i went to do a genealogy kind of number we were like i took pictures not just pictures but um, papers because we had real papers at home i took them to show and tell in grade four like and so did my brothers because we were so proud of being reals, maybe overly proud, but but you, you can I'm I'd wear that one if anybody wants to claim that. Yeah. Um, but but we were raised that way, and I'm still that way. <laughs> yes, I can tell. I mean, I hear it in your voice, and it's so nice to hear because I mean, so often, I mean, especially with the residential school uh, impact, you know, many Indigenous peoples, I mean, not even just Métis, but Indigenous, full Indigenous peoples were ashamed to say they were Indigenous. So if, if they looked a little a different um, nationality, they wouldn't correct people and say, no, well, I'm actually Cree or Dene or whatever. There was the stigma of not being proud of who you are. So it's really refreshing to hear about how proud you are to be Indigenous, to be Métis. And it really is, it's so great. It is so great, especially right now in this time of, of this era. You know, we want to be strong. We want to have, include everything, you know, and I've talked to, I was talking to an Indigenous person recently, and he had on his other side, I think he said Scottish or some European on his other side, and he just recently started acknowledging that. So it works both ways, you know, yeah. because the two together is who you're made of, right? So it, it's important to acknowledge both your Indigenous side and your non-Indigenous side, because that makes the whole of who you are. And uh, so thank you very much for for that. I mean, I, I do love just 
how much research you put into the book that you published, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and I think that, and it says a lot about just your passion for it, not just the genealogy, the historical facts, but it's, it shows through in your writing, you know, how this is a passion of yours. So I want to just segue into looking at, I know the bulk of your work is in constitutional rights, um, Indigenous constitutional rights. And I want to maybe, you know, the majority of people listening to my podcast are not legally trained. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we can simplify, you know, the Constitution Act of 1982 and what that means for Indigenous people. Yeah, wow. Well, that's not a small question at all, Angela. But uh, I think the basic concept of um, it's it's a section of the Constitution called Section 35. Mm -hmm. And basically what it says is that the Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. And then in a sub there's a few sub clauses, but the the one I'm just going to talk about is and then it says for the purposes of this act, the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are the Indian, Inuit, and Métis peoples of Canada. And there's some other subclauses, yeah. but yeah. for the purposes of it, that's the big one. So Aboriginal treaty rights. So what's an Aboriginal right? <laughs> you know, um, a treaty right is probably a little bit easier because that means there's an agreement with the Crown and there is a, and that's what a treaty is. It's a contract, an agreement with the Crown between one particular, uh, and I'll say First Nations or the Inuit and the, the crown. So we have, um, for example, in Ontario, the Robinson Huron Treaty and the Robinson Superior Treaty. And there are a whole bunch of treaties around Georgian Bay, um, that are numbered Treaty 27 and a half and things like that. Yes. Like there's a lot of treaties. There's the Williams Lake Treaty. Mm-hmm. There's the, the um, Treaty 3 in Western Ontario, Treaty 9 up in the north. Um, and there are some modern treaties that people are negotiating. So the Algonquins are in negotiations to a modern treaty. And um, and we have the numbered treaties on the prairies, treaties 1 to 11, mm-hmm. that went from 1870 to 1921. So... And then we have more modern treaties up in the Northwest Territories and in Nunavut, in Labrador and British Columbia. Yeah. That's been since 19 and in Northern Quebec. Because so since 1975, right up until today, we're still engaged in modern treaty negotiations. So it's one of the Canadian projects, right? It's been <laughs> going on. Treaty negotiations have been going on almost since the day the white men arrived on the shores. They've been mm-hmm. making treaties with Indians. And the basic idea is that um, they want rights. They want rights to use the lands and the resources. And they know that the indigenous peoples are the holders of those rights. And so if they want access to them, they got to make a deal. And so a lot of those deals are not very fair. Mm. A lot of those deals were not at all what the indigenous people thought they were signing on to. But you have to remember that the white man wrote it in white man's words Mm-hmm. And most Indigenous people, certainly in the early days, couldn't read. Yeah. Um, and so they thought they were agreeing to one thing, but the white man wrote 
different things in the treaty and then got them to sign it. So there's um, there's a lot of, uh, and we've taken those cases to court forever. There's a very recent one about the annuities clause in the Robinson-Huron-Robinson Superior Treaties that's wow. just gone going forward. Um, so those are really important um, cases. The other thing that underlies a lot of this is that the government, well, not government, but just white people generally, were pretty convinced that Indians were going to disappear, right? That's that's what underlies most of these treaties is this idea that eventually uh, Indigenous people will either get assimilated mm. into the Canadian, greater Canadian population, or they would die out. And so then the government wouldn't have any, those treaties, they wouldn't have to do mm. anything with them, right? So um, that those are, that is one of the underlying things on all of these Aboriginal and treaty rights things. So treaty rights, that's kind of what treaty rights are. Aboriginal rights are different. Those are rights that exist when you don't. So you didn't have an agreement, but you have these pre-existing rights that you have because not because you're a race of people, but because you're nations. Nations are the beings that hold rights. So, um, so nations had rights to their territories and to the lands and the resources. They also have rights with respect to who their members are. They've got rights to their um, customs and their traditions and their values and all of that kind of thing. So unless you've signed a treaty, that's what you've got are Aboriginal rights. Problem is white folks don't know what those are. And so they consider them to be kind of yeah, not existent unless they recognize them in their courts, which is so backwards and so outrageous mm. uh, theory, which is we will only recognize what you have. And this is with treaties, too, at the very moment that we extinguish it. But until we recognize that you don't have it and after we recognize it, it's been extinguished. Yeah, you don't have it any longer. Exactly. You never had it because we didn't recognize it. And then once we did recognize it, we we erased it. Yeah. So it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So if you think this is all twisted, you're absolutely right. It's a crazy twisted theory of that basically comes down to, well, once we arrived, we get it all one way or the other. Mm. Um, and so we've gone to court. For a long time, there are lots of court cases before Section 35 of the Constitution became law in 1982. There were a lot of cases before. Most of them were dreadful losses. And that's because the court didn't honor the treaties, essentially. They just basically let the government do whatever it wanted to. And so the whole point of Section 35, bringing in the constitutional protection, was to make it so that they couldn't do that anymore. So you raise up Aboriginal and treaty rights up to a constitutional level. That means, man, they got to work really hard now to get rid of those rights. And so a lot of us since 1982 have been lawyers taking um, cases to the Supreme Court of Canada mm. all the way up for the 10 or 12 or 15 year or 20, sometimes 30 yes. year journey that it takes to get a case up there. and in order to have it articulated what that right is 
so that they can't pretend it doesn't exist. Now, I just want to say one thing. There's a one word in the Constitution, the Section 35, that government is not paying any attention to. And usually they argue that, oh, we should pay attention to every word and things. So except in this situation, and that's the word hereby. So the Constitution, Section 35 says the Aboriginal and treaty rights to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. Now, if for anybody who's a lawyer, and I recognize that probably most of the people on your listening to this are not, um, hereby means it's already been done. That It means that by the act of signing this piece of paper, that is it. It is hereby recognized and affirmed. It shouldn't mean that you now have to go to court in order to prove it, because the Constitution said it was hereby recognized and affirmed. But the government hasn't read the Constitution that way, and neither have the courts. And I think that's a terrible error, but it is what has forced us to take case after case where we fight for our rights inch by inch, mile by mile, over and over again. You win one case in Ontario and you got exactly the same situation in Alberta and you have to do it all over again. Yeah. It's outrageous what is going on in the Canadian government and um, you and provincial governments and um, the and the, the courts. The courts have actually been our best friends. Doesn't mean they're good friends. It means they're better than everybody else, meaning government players, mm. because they have paid attention to the fact that it's constitutional law. So that's why yeah. we take them. I've been engaged in this for 30 some years and have taken or been a part of many cases, I think 12 cases going to the Supreme Court of Canada. Some of them we win. Some of them are huge wins. Some of them are complete losses. Um, as a lawyer, sometimes you feel like you, okay, I nailed that one. I got it. I know this is a win. It's a good one. I got it. It's great. You come out feeling on top of the world. You know you've done a good job. And you know it's going to work. And other times I come out feeling like a worm that's been beaten up by or run over on the railroad tracks, yes. you know, because no matter what you say, they're not gonna, they're not listening. They're not going with you. And you know it from the minute you're up there, you know that this is a loot. They're just not going to do it. And you it's incredibly frustrating um, sometimes. And it's very elating. Uh, on other at other times so you know I, I guess it's like being a professional athlete you know you you win some ball games and you lose some or what is it that I think it's um one of those songs one of those country and western songs sometimes you're the uh the Louisville slugger and sometimes you're the ball <laughs> you know or sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes you're the bug you know um, that's that's what it feels like to be trying to fight this stuff um for years and years and years is sometimes I feel like the bug is sometimes I feel like the windshield I, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, from an indigenous perspective, being that I'm indigenous, you know, what often used to really upset me is, you know, some of these court cases that are taken, they had to be taken to court, like you say, piece by piece. So if a hunter is out hunting or a fisher is, fisherman is out fishing and then, you know, um, the Ministry of uh, Fish and Wildlife or 
or some other ministry comes and gives them a ticket for for fishing or hunting. And so at that point, the Indigenous person feels, I have a right to this. This is my livelihood. I have a right to this. But then they have to go to court for years and at great expense to show that they have a right that they already do have, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's frustrating as hell to do that because it really, it not only is it so cumbersome and takes so long, but it's the cost related to that. Mm -hmm. Right. Years and years of it's because it takes years and years of lawyer time. Right. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I'm a lawyer too, but it's not cheap and there's your, and it's a ton of work, you know, you take one of these cases on and it's, it's months and months and months of spending every hour of the day, um, working on this stuff. So it, and years of your time mm. to run these cases and all f- just because the provincial government, well, the government lawyers think nothing of that expense or time or inconvenience or stress because very stressful on whoever is the man or the woman mostly a man on the hunting and fishing cases that this all rests on because then they feel like if they lose they did something wrong and they let down their whole first nation or everybody in canada right i mean it's hugely stressful for them to be the the point person on this but the government doesn't even because they don't have to pay their lawyers, right? Right. They don't think about how they, they're engaged. It this is part of their business, and so they don't think about the years and years and years that this does. Or it's not stressful for them. It doesn't cost them anything. Yeah. It doesn't. It, there's no no skin off their bones on this, and they think, oh well, you know, I heard I heard a government lawyer once say, like it, it's almost a mic drop because shouldn't have said it, but he did. He said after the Chilcotin case came down, which was the big case that confirmed the very first time that there was actually Aboriginal title that the Chilcotin had in British Columbia, um, that he said, well, now we've got a case that's so interesting. And when we have 20 or so cases, we'll really have the law nailed down. And I was just standing there in the in the audience. And I I actually called him out on it. I said, "I'm just appalled that you would say that because this case took 30 years mm. to get to the Supreme Court of Canada. You've got a 400 year agenda there. You're saying that you're not going to pay any attention to this law until there's another 30 cases. Is that that's what you just sentenced us all to?" another 30 years before you're going to actually act mm-hmm. on this case it's um, so it's appalling it's just appalling their attitudes to indigenous rights and even how they minimize court cases like supreme court of canada cases so the Pauli case is a good example that's mm-hmm. the first case where we recognized or the courts recognized metis had hunting rights and we thought it would be like the so the first case that did that for first nations was sparrow Mm -hmm. and that was ron sparrow from musquim who went out fishing 
got charged and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and the court said, okay, um, we will recognize uh, First Nation fishing rights across Canada, right? They even said treaty rights, which is really interesting because Ron Spiro is not a treaty Indian, right? <laughs> so, but uh, they recognized it for all across Canada. So I thought when we took the Pauli case that that's what would happen. We get the Pauli decision from the Supreme Court of Canada and they would apply it all across Canada. It got applied nowhere except in Sault Ste. Marie to the actual Paulis. They wouldn't even apply it to the <laughs> local community. We had to take them to court in Ontario again. Mm. We had to take them to court in Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Alberta in order to get them to apply the Pauli case. Now, that is that is outrageous that a, a Departments of Justice in the provinces refuse to abide by a Supreme Court of Canada judgment. It's outrageous um, that they can do that and that they can get away with it. And they do do yeah. it and they do get away with it. And my own take on them reason they treated the Sparrow case differently from the Pauli case is because they drew a line in the sand. They went, okay, well, we were trying to stave off these Indians from getting hunting and fishing rights and we lost that battle, but okay, so, but only them, no Métis. We're drawing a line in the sand and we're going to fight them every step of the way. And that's what they've been doing. Um, yeah. It, it's, um, yeah. It's frustrating. It is so frustrating. I mean, I've followed these court cases, you know, since the, well, late 80s, 90s. And, you know, and looking at the decisions, you know, and sometimes when I'm reading the decisions, I'm looking at, okay, how is justice going to interpret this? <laughs> because more often than not, they're going to look for a way out of it, rather than something to support Indigenous peoples. Yeah, so it's it's very frustrating, you know, and when you're looking at bureaucrats, because bureaucrats, you know, when we move away from the courts and look at the bureaucrats, like justice or even the province or the federal government, they're basing policy and they'll look at the policy as law more than they would look at law as law. You know, they'll say, well, this is our policy. So this is it, you know, and that's why it's so frustrating because we know as Indigenous people and most of Canadians that what's in law is actually, it's, it's pretty significant, <laughs> you know. You don't have to be a lawyer to know that the written law is a significant piece of wording and... Mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's frustrating when bureaucrats develop their policies and negate looking at the law and seeing you know what their obligation are under the law. And so yeah, it's I had a recent um, interview podcast with a chief from Ontario, mm -hmm. and it was quite interesting because it's you know the Mohawks. And we were talking about the relationship because the queen had just passed mm -hmm. and we were talking about the Mohawks relationship with the queen and the royal family. And it was really interesting because he said, you know, the queen re 
related to the Mohawks because they were allies during, you know, the French war that they were sovereign. Like they related to them as they were sovereign. So they, you know, they ended up getting gifts from, you know, like the Queen Anne Silver, Queen Victoria, like they got gifts from the Royal family as you would give to another sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. And so it was totally recognized for them. And I, I noted to him that this is what Indigenous people across Canada want, is to be recognized as sovereign and to be able to to deal nation to nation with, mm-hmm. with you know, Europeans, you know, Britain. And, um, and they established that. Like, I mean, the, the amount of gifts that they got are really phenomenal. Like, you know, a chapel as you know, they got it designated as a historical chapel that was gifted to them from the queen. They've got the silver and other artifacts. They've taken people from the Mohawks back to England and then back again to, to, um, to just cement this relationship that they had with, with the crown. So on one hand, you have a group of people that have been recognized. And I'm sure if you start to push it, I you know, and look at sovereignty, they wouldn't be recognized as sovereign because they mm-hmm. can't be, because we're under the Indian Act. We're not independent anymore, right? And so we won't see that type of acknowledgement from, from anybody, you know, much less the the crown or federal government or anything where they're not going to look at and, you know, because some first nations are, are negotiating to set up, you know, like in child welfare and education to set up their own sovereign, like not sovereign, but pushing forward their sovereignty to manage their, their, their members, healthcare and child welfare, you know, and education. But there, it again is really the, um, they have to fight tooth and nail for that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, um, it seems like, you know, you know, we have, and I hear people talking about, okay, well, you know, First Nations are getting this, they're getting that, why are they always getting all these things, you know, and I think there's a, a myth out there that, treaty Indians or status Indians get lots of stuff, but they don't look at the exchange, you know, so when you talk earlier about the treaties and part of the treaties were, you know, we were given segments of land, right? Pieces of land when we own everything else, right? <laughs> but we were put on pieces of land on reserves for an exchange and in some areas, I'm from Treaty 8. And mm-hmm. so one one of the the items in Treaty 8 that the chiefs of, of the time were talking about were they wanted to ensure that education was part of that. Mm-hmm. And then further south at Treaty 6, they wanted to ensure that the medicine chest was included in that. So the different First Nations had what was important to them and they wanted to ensure that was included in the treaty. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes upsets me that people believe 
I think they see the government spending this money on First Nations as for nothing, right? Like, well, we're we're spending all this money on First Nations for education, for health, but they don't see as in anything, we gave up huge parcels of land to get the bit of what we got. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at treaties, you know, what is the best way to to confirm and to keep our rights as as First Nations are negotiating, you know, modern day treaties, is there pitfalls that we should be avoiding? Yeah, there the modern day treaties are not without their problems. Um uh there are there are many people who are vehemently against entering into modern day treaties. I find that that a little bit difficult because they're the same people who seem to treat the old treaties as if they're sacred. So I I don't understand why the old ones are sacred, but the new ones are not. Um, So I I don't understand that, but um, maybe somebody just hasn't explained it to me well enough. But I, I think that each individual group is perfectly within its rights to um, enter into an agreement with the crown if that's what they want to do. I think it is uh, one of the rights of their sovereignty to be able to do that. Um, So many First Nations are taking the approach that they're watching, uh, you know, the wave of increasing population, the spread of the cities, the huge projects that are going on across their lands. They're watching more and more immigration coming in and city, you know, just gobbling up the lands where they used to hunt and fish are now subdivisions with people living in houses. And that doesn't show any signs of stopping. It's only moving more and more and more. And I think that the Groups that are engaged in modern treaty negotiations are really looking at some way of protecting even something the most they can. Um, and I know I was um, part of the legal team that worked for the Tlichon in the Northwest Territories on their treaty. And um, that was, we had clear instructions from the chiefs, which was get us as much land as possible. Even if we don't get a dime of money, get us as much land as you can get. Mm. And so in the end, they got 39,000 square. So I can't remember if it's miles or kilometers that they got, but it's like the size of a small European country, right? Um, so it's it's huge. And they did get money as well, but they they got that land protected and they got the ability to make the decisions about what happens on that land. Um, and that's what they wanted. And they were quite adamant that they could look after themselves. If they had a big enough piece of land, they could live on it. They could raise their children on it. They could do what they needed to do um, because it was big enough that they could they could have the access to the resources themselves. So that's what they got. 
Now we also got self-government recognition of self-government with that. Um, and so it's, it, it's um, for them, they're very happy with that treaty. And so I'm, and it's protected by the constitution and there, as I, as far as I'm concerned, they went into it with their eyes wide open. They thought long and hard about it. They negotiated it. They started negotiating really in 1975 and they signed off in 2005. So that's a long time of people thinking and talking. And they ratified that treaty with, I think, like 98% of their people voted and 98% of the 98 voted in favor. I may be fudging the numbers a little bit, but it's generally in that range. Like that, this was not a 50% of the people attended and only 50% of those approved it. This is like overwhelming um, participation, almost 100% and overwhelming support for it. So I don't think it gets any better than that in terms of the people themselves deciding what they want to do and, and needing it. The same is so in British Columbia, where people are negotiating treaties. I was working with the Stalo for 14 years on their treaty. And you, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to watch the massive population explosion that's been going on. The land is disappearing left, right, and center. So um, I'm no longer working with them. But before I left, one of the things that we did accomplish was setting aside huge swaths of land for them that's protected. Now, they haven't signed their treaty yet. I don't know if they ever will, but that land is set aside and it's protected. Now, do I regard that as mm, the the stealing on it? No, it's the floor that we got protected. At least they've got something set aside for them. It's big amount of land and it's going, because it's in the lower Fraser Valley, which is like being on the outskirts of Toronto or something like that, it's going to be worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. It already is probably. So that that's the whole point for them is to try and protect something before it's all gone into private hands, in which case, I don't know how you get it back. You get it back then lot by lot by lot, uh, and some places are like that. In Victoria, the the people there, the Hunkaminam, who are in treaty negotiations there, there's literally no land to be had for them. It's all gone already. So it puts them in a... And the same with the Tsuwasan Agreement. They were in a situation where there was nothing. There was a lot here and a lot there. So they did the best they could, but they got basically more money than land because there wasn't any land in... Uh, available. So so the people who are in modern treaty negotiations, I absolutely understand why they want to do it. Are there problems? Yes, there's problems with it. The government is demanding that you have to have a constitution and constitution has to have things in it that they want in it. You know, they don't want to recognize your hereditary um, uh, governance systems that come through hereditary chiefs, or I actually don't like calling them hereditary chiefs because it's more like traditional chiefs because it doesn't necessarily go, at least for the Stalo, it doesn't go necessarily from like father to son to, you know, like that. It, the it, It's a name. You get a name that's been handed down. Best example was 
uh, Frank Malloway, who was called Samchus. Samchus is uh, one of the names from like eons back. It carries massive responsibilities. It carries all kinds of weight with it. When he was getting to be a senior, he's looking at his kids. He doesn't see any of his children who he thinks are the right people to carry that name on. So he gives it to, you know, a grandson. So it doesn't necessarily go down like Prince Charles gets to become, because he's the firstborn child. That's not the way traditional systems work. So we call them hereditary, but they're not really in the same way. But the government looks at me as the chief negotiator for the Stalo, when I was, I'm not anymore, but when I was, and says, well, we you, we don't want to support, we want democratic systems. And I said, you've got a queen as your head of state. You've got a hereditary system yourself. And you turn, don't you think it's hypocritical that you turn around and tell them that they can't do that? So there's lots of things like that that are buried in the, the treaties. There's lots of things that are fundamentally Indigenous people don't agree with. So one of them is that scientists, Western scientists, think that some things are not alive, right? Um, and I've never met an Indigenous person who agrees with that. <laughs> you know, just because it's a rock doesn't mean it's not alive. Just because it's, you know, there are not things in the water that are, I think they call them anaerobic or something. I can't remember what the term is, but there's actually a term. And in their eyes, that means that it isn't living. And, and I never have met an Indigenous person who agrees with that. Even Indigenous scientists don't agree with that. But that's buried in the treaty. And I could bang my head on against the wall for 20 years, and they probably will never change that. And then what will happen is Indigenous people go, oh, God, okay, let's just sign this and we'll swallow that one. We don't agree with it, but we'll swallow it because we want to get this thing done. And that's what happens. You end up making compromises that are um, sometimes come back to haunt you 50 years later. And sometimes you just ignore. One of the good things about treaty is that once you get that self-government up and running, the government kind of leaves you alone. And, you know, you may have limitations on what you can do, but nobody's checking. And so the reality is that they're just out there doing what they want to do and what they need to do for their people. And government is not oversight on them. And so only if it affects what government is doing, will they come up and say, well, our treaty says, but the reality is the government puts those treaties on a shelf and they gather dust and they don't look at them unless the First Nation says, hey, 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 pay attention. We got a treaty right here. You can't do that. And then they bring it down and they look at it and go, oh, God, you're right. We, we're sp Or they disagree and they try to find a way around it, um, in which case we end up in court. But basically, once you sign a treaty with a self-government agreement in it, it affords you massive ability to just work on it. You don't have the Indian Act anymore. You don't have that oversight from the minister anymore. You're free to do make your own mistakes mm -hmm. but also do really good things and we have i'll just say finish on this there's really good evidence out there about in those health and wellness indicators that stats canada follows about better education healthier people better housing better jobs all of that first nations who have modern treaties 
have a skyrocketing and increasing um, wellness indicators on all those four things going up and people, First Nations who are on Indian Act bans, theirs is going down. So what we see is a better standard of living, better education, better housing, better jobs, better standard of living for people in modern treaties than we have for First Nations who are not in modern treaties. And it's because they have self-government and they can make their own decisions instead of having Ottawa tell them, well, we'll give you money for this program. Whereas if the band really had its own ability to function without that, they would never do that. They would do something entirely different. And so that's what happens when you're in a modern treaty. You get to make decisions about how you spend your own money and what you think your people need. So you can spend the money looking after your elders and housing them and dealing with all this stuff. And you can spend money on keeping your kids out of the juvenile justice system. And you can do all of those kinds of things that you can't do otherwise. And it's starting to really show. So what we're going to see over time is the modern Treaty First Nations standard of living is just going to keep increasing and getting better. And, you know, the First Nations who are not, it's just going to keep going down because they don't have enough land, don't have enough money to provide all the. It isn't that they don't want to. They don't have the budgets or the land to deal with all this stuff. And it's just, um, so I am in favor of modern treaty just for those reasons. Are they perfect? No. (laughs) Could they be a lot better? Absolutely. But they're so much better than what you get with banned government, what you're allowed to do and how much land and how much money you have on a banned governance system that, um, I, I'm totally with all the First Nations who think it's well worth doing that. That That is really, I mean, that is such a positive note to, I think we're, we're getting, we're getting closer. We could talk for hours, Jean. Probably. <laughs> I mean, this is so wonderful. It's such a pleasure talking to you, Angelina. <laughs> it's it. so great to have you. Um, speaking on these things, because I know there's a lot of, um, you know, confusion out there in the world in terms of what Indigenous people have and what they should have, what they shouldn't have, what they're up to. And I think this, you know, our our conversation today has cleared up some of that. We've covered a huge area, you know, from the Constitution to treaties to court cases. We've really covered a lot of stuff this in this conversation in this podcast and i am so you know happy that you've agreed to speak with me this afternoon and talk about these issues and like i said you know we can talk forever but you know <laughs> we have things to do <laughs> so- i just think that one of the things if i can just end on this is that um in the last um since 2015 the modern treaty um, situation has changed dramatically for the better. So you don't lose your Section 88 tax exemption anymore. They're not extinguishment treaties. There's no loans. Uh, there's lots of things that have changed that are really, really good. Um, but I think it's up to us, all of us as Indigenous people, 
this stuff can all be taken away with a change of government, all these policies. So we need to be vigilant and keep pushing always and never let up. That is so true. I mean, like, you know, we've talked about bureaucracies and government policies, and it's, you're totally right. It With a change of policy, they can take away. And I think that's why some of the First Nations are fearful of modern day treaties, you know, because they know what they have under the Indian Act and this unknown about modern treaties. It might be better, but it's unknown to them, right? So it's like, you know, you go with the devil, you know, not what's out there. Well, then, then my take on it is, there are people who are in the modern treaties who are perfectly happy to come and talk to you and tell you, and they'll tell you about the warts and the good things, right? So, and then you'll know, you can, you can talk to people who are just newly into it. And you can talk to people like the James Bay Cree who've been in it since 1975 and anywhere in between, and you can find out. So instead of just thinking You'll stay with the devil, you know, because you think it's unknown. There are lots of good indigenous people out there who can tell you whether they think it's good or bad or whether they're sorry. But I've yet to meet a single indigenous leader who is in a modern treaty who regrets it, who thinks that it would be better if they hadn't gone into treaty. I haven't met one yet. Um, so that, I mean, doesn't mean there aren't people out there. I just, I just have never met one and I've met a lot of them. So I think that essentially, um, it's, I'm sorry. I don't think you can be worse than being on a limited band council. Having, I, my own take in it, whenever there's more jurisdiction, more money and more land on the table, you should take it. That's, that's my, my theory, but you know, I get it that people, don't agree with that. And I'm not First Nations. So it is entirely the decision of the people. And I personally support whatever decision they make, whether they decide to stay with the band or uh, council and governance and under the Indian Act or not. That's entirely their decision. And I say hats off to you for whatever it is you do. I support you in whichever way you decide to go. And the same with the Métis Nation. I think whatever they decide to do is up to us <laughs> to do. And we get to do it. And the same with the Inuit. They get to say what they want to do, and we should all support them. Once they've made a decision and signed off on those agreements, We should, which they've done now, we should just support them and say and recognize their agreements, recognize their self-government, and recognize the, that and respect it and work with it. And for all of the people, I say that. So we are we are nations, and um, I think we should all be respectful. I'm personally in favor of Indigenous nations having internation uh, treaties as well. I think that's something that would really stand to benefit a lot of us if we had agreements on certain issues um, that we should be doing it. We should act like nations, the nations that we are. And, and in every way we should do that. And that means everything from taking control of your membership. So you know who your members are, um, to, uh, acting like nations and exercising your rights and, um, and doing whatever you can to work with your neighbors and other indigenous people as nations 
to go forward. My vision for the future is that eventually Canada will be a confederation of not just the provinces and the federal government, but but the colonial government and all of the indigenous governments. And we will be participants in our own governance, but they will have to have us included in how the national and provincial governments and regional governments work. And otherwise they can't go forward because we have control and say over the lands and the resources. So they want to do something. It's got to be with us or not at all. Yeah, I totally, I love that vision. And I, and I, that's a vision I can support and, you know, hope that it comes true. It and it probably will. Years. Yeah, it might. hundred years. I mean, it's the same. I have another vision that I share with um, lots of people on the prairies about having the buffalo run again as big herds. And um, so I know that one's not going to happen in probably in my lifetime, but I still have this vision. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, if there's one thing I wish I could go back and do, it would be to be alive when those herds were going. Cause that's who my people are, the Buffalo yeah. hunters. And I, I could see it now, all kinds of people, the indigenous nations now have Buffalo herds and there's yeah. a Buffalo treaty now about this very thing but it's a very long-term vision yeah i remember i mean we have buffalo in the um you know in alberta you know mm -hmm. i think the wit was it the Miccosoo cree when they had their agreement they protected the buffalo i'm i'm kept i mean yeah, i'm not those sure are, those are wood um woodland buffalo yes different species they're smaller like bison right yeah they're different from the prairie yeah the ones that roamed in the huge massive herds on the prairies yeah uh, they're kind of cousins but yeah. they're they're yeah. it's the ones on the because uh, the woodland buffalo um don't run in those massive massive herds yes um, so, but it's the ones on the prairies that i'd like to see coming back again and they so the blackfoot have been working there's there's now buffalo in Banff, and the Blackfoot have a herd. The Manitoba Métis Federation has a herd. There's probably I I'm, I don't know how many First Nations in the United States and Saskatchewan and Alberta and Manitoba First Nations have herds, but there's I I would guess there's about twenty now mm -hmm. that have them, and they are starting to work on this wow. idea, and they're spread out all over. I think North. Dakota, Montana, um, Idaho, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and and all of those nations are starting to raise up their herds. And I don't know if they're starting to buy land in order to try and join up things, but that would be the way to do it. But it might be a hundred years before that happens. <laughs> Grandchildren and great grandchildren will see it. Yeah, I hope and great, so. great grandchildren. I hope so. Well, I think that's a positive note to, to <laughs> conclude on, Jean. Thank you so much. It was a real delight talking to you, and I so enjoyed it. Okay. Um, Me too. So have a wonderful rest of the week, almost the weekend. Yeah, almost. and um, maybe at some point we'll we'll talk about other. I'll get you back on to talk about maybe different areas, maybe if there's a Supreme Court decision coming down, 
we'll talk about that. Um, But it's such wonderful conversation. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure.